Yannick et on écoute Linux for Everyone en Suisse. Welcome home Welcome to Linux for Everyone. Yes, this is a hostile takeover of the podcast once again from the Destination Linux crew. But this time, we've got the big announcement in our hands to bring. Michael, what did we come to the people with? I mean, when I said that you guys, there was an open door for you to be on the show, I, I didn't mean, uh, you know, a revolving door every week. You know how much we like to talk. You gave us an open uh, invite anytime <laughs> right. we wanted, you said. I have it on recording. You, so here we are. You said welcome home again. and I already moved in. <laughs> Does that include all your hardware? No. Nice. <laughs> ah, see. All right. Uh, no, I'm really, really excited about this because this is something that I have uh, had to keep under my hat for a while and something I have very, very much been looking forward to. So after last week's tease, I definitely can't wait to kill all the suspense and just dive into this. But first, I want to give a special shout out to Yannick who you heard at the beginning of the show with his Welcome Home tag. And he lives in Switzerland, and he's also the host of a new podcast called T. Earl Grey Hot. I'm going to give you three guesses what that show's about. He co-hosts it with Dave Lee, also known as The Love Bug, who you may know. And uh, I'm going to be a guest on an upcoming episode in about two weeks or so. And I'd love to see you over there as well. Let me also take a quick minute to thank... All 54 patrons of Linux for Everyone. Incredible, you guys. Thank you so much for your support. A special greeting goes out to my newest patrons, Dave Lee, Eiler McNeil, Davik, Christopher Scott, and Dementor. So I want you guys to grab yourself a cup of coffee, a beer, uh, your beverage of choice, and sit back and relax, because this is going to be a long episode. After our quick chat with Michael and Ryan, we're going to get into the community voice, and then a very special interview with Code Weavers. Okay, no more beating around the bush. Let's just put it all on the table. Michael, tell us what's happening. The big announcement is that the Destination Linux network is officially live. So we wanted to, to let people know about it and just take a little bit of a uh, little bit of time to let you know about what all this means. So our mission with DLN is to bring the best of the community together and provide a welcoming and inclusive place for everyone to use, learn, and enjoy Linux and open source together. This is going to provide ways, Jason, for all of our communities to come together to discover new content from all the fantastic creators that have like-minded communities. We've talked on your show when I was interviewed about the importance of the community. Everyone wants to build the community of kind-hearted, inclusive individuals who just want to learn and enjoy this Linux and open source world together. And that's what we're building here. So starting with podcasts, you get Destination Linux podcast. You get the Linux for Everyone podcast. You get This Week in Linux. You get the Ask Noah show all of those communities coming together, but we're not even stopping there. You get the video content from my channel, from Zebedee Boss, from Tux Digital. You get the live streams as well in there. 
And then we're going to provide a hub for all of our communities to be able to chat, network, and share their journeys, whether they're beginners or experienced users that have been in it for decades. They're going to be able to share all of the information together through things like interactive forums and other tools. This is where I get really excited because, sure, I mean, it's amazing to actually be on board with you guys and doing a thing together, you know, but people can, of course, get these shows on their own. There's nothing stopping anyone from subscribing separately to all of these things that we're making. But I love the idea of bringing our individual communities together for just a, a greater purpose and more networking and more discovery, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. The network part is so important. I mean, I, I, I run a local community event for Linux and open source called Linux and Coffee in the Georgia area. And there's so many networking opportunities that pop up from things such as jobs or just fixing or learning Linux from the beginning that you have the opportunity there for. But it doesn't get shared with everyone. It's just the people that show up. And in an online community, it's the same thing. There may be discussions or questions that happen in your community that don't happen in ours. So then it gets repeated. But having that one central place where these communities could come together is just such an important aspect to, I think, really growing Linux to where we all want it to go with the right people, with the people that share our passion, our love, and our kind to one another uh, type of mentality. And I think if you look at all of the shows we've brought into the network, they all share that similar uh, want for what they want the communities to to be like and inter- how they want them to interact with each other. Ryan, to sort of emphasize that point that you're making, and this is this is a very small example, but it just happened this last week, and I, I wanted to point it out because it was so cool. Um, so I have a habit of sharing, um, you know, how many listeners are subscribed to this show and from what countries, right? And so I, you know, I throw the chart up there and and say, hey, you know, Israel, hey, Croatia, hey, Italy, you know, thank you for listening and and so forth. It's not that big of a deal, but people appreciate that. So someone asked, how many listeners in Israel? And so I looked it up and I said, oh, here's how many, here's how many in Israel. And, uh, and the guy said, oh, that's really cool. Where am I, you know, where are my fellow people from Israel at? And two people on Twitter actually responded like, hey, I listen to the show. I'm from Israel. And so the guy goes, we should start a, a, an Israeli Linux user group. And so later that day he did. And then on our Telegram, he got like three or four more people from his area and I mean, imagine imagine what could happen if if he had a bigger community to tap into. Absolutely. I mean, Destination Linux itself has been around for a while now. And, you know, the idea that we're listened to in over 107 countries is shocking. I still look at that number and just, wow, I can't even name 107 countries. <laughs> but we have a worldwide community. And then you combine that with Linux for everyone. You combine that with This Week in Linux, with the Das Geek channel, with Ask Noah show. You've got just a massive community available to everyone for networking and for being able to realize that this Linux thing, this open source thing, it's not niche anymore. It's massive. And now we can bring these communities together. Yeah, it's, we're bringing these, like the, all these communities together as like to, you know, allow us to build a a place where everybody can communicate and get help from each other and, you know, just learn more about it and, you know, to, to enjoy the thing that we all love together in a single place. Also, one of the things that we're going to talk about 
that is uh, the the hub that we're basically doing, and that's uh, the forum with a discourse forum that everybody can join. And you know, whether you're a fan of one individual podcast or one of the another another podcast or the whole network, you can join the forum and talk about any of the any of the shows, uh, just general topics, whatever you want to talk about. Also, we can do we're gonna have tutorials. People can post like uh, tutorials that they want to share with people. They're like anything you want, there's gonna be a place for it in the discourse forum for Destination Linux Network. And one more thing, Jason, and I know you're going to absolutely love this. When you bring communities like this together at this size, one of the things that you want to do is give back. And Mm -hmm. having a community of this size, we can give back in big ways. So things like privacy, security, the digital divide, and issues that are important to everyone in the community, we're going to be doing giving back campaigns as an important part of our mission here. So... With that, we're going to let the community pick the first charity that we are going to back with this new network and be able to give back to to the communities out there to help fix some of these issues, hopefully, or at least patch them up the best we can with our communities and really get involved in these mission statements. So how how can the community find that announcement? I mean, is it going to be something that's like on all of the shows or... Uh, will it be at the Destination Linux Network Hub? Both. All the shows will be talking about the the actual charity part we're going to be doing, as well as uh, if you want it, but as far as to participate, as far as suggesting different charities, you can do that on the hub with the the forum. Uh, by going to destinationlinux.network, you can find the links to everything, and the forum will be there as well, so you can just go there, and then the, well, we'll have a sticky like a uh, sticky topic specifically for that particular purpose. So if you want to participate and suggest different charities, please go there and let us know. So one of the benefits for me, uh, aside from everything you guys have mentioned, and, and certainly one of the benefits for listeners, is that now I have the resources of this entire awesome network to call upon. And because of that, very soon, you guys are going to be able to get Linux for Everyone on YouTube. Nice. And I'm so excited that you're going to have a YouTube presence. And it's not because of just the YouTube factor, because that's an area to meet a larger audience, to expose a larger audience to Linux, to open source, to your show, and see how welcoming and open the Linux community can be. But this is also about marketing Linux in a positive light. We've talked about in the Amen. past episodes about you know the need for Linux to be marketed more, to change some of the old perceptions of Linux. And by having a network that has built, worked, all of us have worked from the very beginning to have a community that shares and is kind to one another and has this mission in mind, and then picking missions from the charity perspective that we can all go at, Together, I think this is going to represent Linux in a completely new light. And we're just, we're so excited, Jason, that you agreed to join this network. We targeted you immediately when we came up with this idea (laughs) because we saw what you were doing. We recognized it because it's very similar to what we've tried to do with our shows as well. And it's just a perfect fit. And I'm just, I'm really excited too. The second that Michael pitched this idea to me, I was on board. We need to show people the positive side of this community. And positivity is really infectious, and we need more of that. We need that enthusiasm that we all have, and we need to show people who maybe aren't using Linux what is so amazing and exciting about 
as we've all said before, not just the operating system, but you know the most the most important part of it, which is the community. Yeah, we also we talk about the passion that we have for the, the every every episode of Destination Linux. We talk about the passion we have for Linux, and I don't know of anyone who really has a passion for another operating system, but like the Linux just brings that passion out because it is such an important thing. And it is the community itself is so welcoming and so positive, but a lot of people don't see that side of it because it's not, you know, it's not a great way to get clicks to talk about how good a community is. So people try to promote the negatives of a community or something like that. Whereas we are promoting what the, the reality of the community and that it is a very positive place to be. And it's a very welcoming and helpful place as well. So when does when does this all start? Give us links, give us dates. Actually, we're started right now. Like the web you can go to the website right now, go to destinationlinux.network and you can check out all the shows that are available uh at as the moment. We're actually working on more things in the future because we we have a lot of things like on, on the roadmap uh, that are not ready yet, but they're going to be ready soon and I can't wait to come back on the show and let you know about those. But uh, right now you can go to destinationlinux.network, check out all the shows, check out the forums, and also participate in that uh, charity suggestion giving back thing we're doing. And also, just really quick, there was actually a part where I think that it's, it's kind of funny that you mentioned how marketing is I've, – I've said this a thousand times – but how marketing is a issue that Linux doesn't really have you know down pat. It's there. We've had for many years a problem, actually still a problem, and that we wanted to help do something about it. And the funny thing is, is I've actually done uh, talks at conferences and stuff like that about marketing in Linux and about open source marketing and all that. And I've made uh, videos about it and stuff. And people have consistently uh, asked me like, well, why don't you do something about it? So now challenge accepted. (laughs) Walking the walk. Well, there's a lot more coming up, but for now, you can head over to destinationlinux.network to check out everything that's going on. I'm really looking forward to it, guys. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, you bet. We'll talk to you soon. So as Ryan mentioned, this show is coming to YouTube, and I'm really excited about that. The channel is already set up, and it's live, so you can go subscribe right now if you prefer YouTube to uh, consume media like this. It's not going to be a video version of this podcast So if you're enjoying the audio, don't worry, nothing is going to change. There's not going to be anything additional there in terms of the show. It'll it'll basically be kind of a neat uh, EQ visualizer overlay that'll be uploaded at the same time as the audio version goes out across the RSS feeds. Now, my goal is for that channel, in addition to the podcast, I'd also like to put out some sporadic video content as well, maybe, you know, the benchmarking process, uh, certain Linux hardware reviews, things like that. So yeah, if you want to grab the show on YouTube, I'll have a link on the show notes over at linuxforeveryone.fireside.fm. Okay, so this week I'm going to put Discovery of the Week on hold just for this week because there's so much to cram in to this episode. I have a, a really cool listener email that I wanted to read and then talk about briefly. Then a community voice segment about Huawei selling laptops with Deepin Linux. After that, uh, we'll dive into my interview with Code Weavers, and I'll take you out, of course, with another song from the source. So this email hit my inbox earlier this week. It's from J.P. Myers, and he says, Hey, Jason, great episode eight. I had never heard of purism before. It was fascinating. The two guys from Destination Linux were great, smart guys. I look forward to whatever the big announcement is. Well, spoiler. Uh, I've heard about three of your shows and love it. Thank you, dude. 
I've been a distro hopper for about 10 years and have recently been using Zorin OS 15 Ultimate. I heard the story about the Zorin brothers and really wanted to support them. The OS is solid and beautiful, and they are even selling laptops with the OS now. I think RDM Zorin, the founder, would be a great guest. I saw him interviewed a few months ago on YouTube, and he's very well-spoken. Good luck with the show. I'll be listening. JP, thank you so much for that. And I'm going to touch on uh, pretty much everything that you said. The fact that you've been a distro hopper for a decade and thus kind of tuned into the Linux ecosystem, but you hadn't heard about Purism was an eye-opener for me. I feel like podcasters and journalists both, we, we can forget that not everyone is watching the same things we are, you know? They're not necessarily aware of all the headlines or that daily news cycle. That's my job, but that's not your job. And you reminded me that we're all constantly learning about new things, whether we've used Linux for six months or, or 15 years. And you also reminded me to, to approach what I'm talking about as if someone had never heard about it before. So thank you for that. Oh, and JP, wish granted. I've been in touch with Artyom Zorin, and he has agreed to jump onto the show for a future interview, and I'm hoping to line that up uh, in the next week or two. For this week's Community Voice, I invited you to share your opinions about Huawei selling a few of their laptop models like the Matebook and the Matebook Pro in China with Deepin Linux. And you know, it seems like any time uh, Huawei is brought up or Deepin Linux is brought up because of their Chinese origins, it tends to introduce a bit of controversy. It's a very divisive topic. From my standpoint, I think that this decision is Huawei starting to test the waters, so to speak. You know, how do people feel about an alternative operating system besides Windows 10? Let's test that out in our home market and and see how it does. I'm hoping that this is, you know, sort of a, a trial run for things to come in Europe and, and globally. Because my, my personal opinion, I think that the, uh, the Huawei... Matebook and Matebook Pro lines are fantastic alternatives to MacBooks, for example. They're, they're quality, they're affordable, and the, the selection of components that are inside of them means that they run pretty much any Linux distribution very, very well already. So let's hear what some of you thought about this situation. Hi, Jason. Neil Darlow here in the UK. My thoughts on Huawei producing deep-in Linux-based laptops. I have a Matebook 13, and it's very good hardware. It runs Windows very well. What would be the reasons for choosing Linux on this particular hardware? Perhaps for the Chinese market, it's an easy choice, because deep-in is a homegrown solution, and it would probably be adopted very well. Here in the Western world, the choices are more and everybody has their own preference on what they would want to put onto a laptop. I think it would be better to produce Linux-compatible hardware and perhaps offer the option of not installing the OS, much like we can buy phones without a SIM. That's my view anyway. Thanks for listening. Leif wrote an email to linuxforeveryone at pm.me and says, this one's easy. With regards to pre-installations, I am for a company that has a reputable past, present, and seems to be making an investment in the future. Unfortunately, Huawei does not meet that criteria, so I would definitely not buy a build from a supplier using them. 
It could be a great groundbreaker for a new Linux distribution, though. Release a few pre-built, solid-running machines that have been tested thoroughly and get them in the hands of your audience. Personally, for me, I think Huawei using Deepin on their select range of laptops is actually really good for Linux. That means we get more clout with OEMs and ODMs and better driver uh, driver support, which is funny because see what you want about Android and Chrome OS. It's because of those that we have better drivers in Linux nowadays. Your feedback, of course, is not just limited to voicemails and emails. Here's what Richard Larson had to say, replying to the Linux for Everyone Twitter account. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter which OS is shipped on the box. What I would like to see is a laptop that the manufacturer has certified as 100% compatible with at least three major Linux distros and allow you to choose. With regard to hardware manufacturer versus privacy, there is simply no way to verify for the normal person that there are no snitches embedded regardless of the manufacturer. We need a modern, quote, underwriter's laboratories for privacy that certifies hardware and firmware. Now, that sounds really interesting, Richard. I I hadn't thought about that before. You know, kind of a, a third party that goes through a verification process for you that digs under the hood and, and, and really ensures to a potential buyer that there's no hidden surprises, so to speak. But, you know, so far, it, it seems like people are not opposed to the idea of Huawei shipping deep in Linux on a laptop. I think that as Linux enthusiasts, you know, we're, we're going to embrace anything that helps get more exposure to quote-unquote average users, right? I mean, a lot of people in China right now stand to experience the, the beauty of something like deep in Linux and the speed and just, you know, all the advantages that Linux has over Windows. Deepin is actually a good target distribution for that because you can set it up to look like a Mac or you can set it up to look like kind of your default like Windows 7, Windows 10 style layout. And it also happens to be really, really easy to use. Okay, let me read one more email. This one's from Dave F. And Dave says, I think this is awesome news. If Huawei end up releasing Linux laptops in the UK, it may well be my next laptop purchase. The machines are lovely, and if this means that everything should just work out of the box, I'd be tempted to buy a Windows one and then wipe it and replace with whatever Linux I was favoring at the time. For me, though, there are potential big wins for both Linux and Huawei. Linux, because it would get a truly desirable piece of hardware that competes with the MacBook and the majority of Ultrabooks out there in terms of visual appeal, and potentially a lot of publicity. I think Huawei could win big because the open source nature of Linux can be used to show that they are not phoning home to China to alleviate some of the concerns that currently exist about Huawei in the Western world. And yeah, Dave, you know, right now in terms of mainstream OEMs, I feel like Dell is is really pushing the, the developer editions and their various platforms with Linux on them. Um, Lenovo is obviously revered for their ThinkPad series in terms of just durability, quality, Linux compatibility, but they're not making as big of a a public-facing push in terms of saying, hey, we've got Ubuntu on these brand new ThinkPads. And I'd love to see them do that, be, be a bit louder about it. But yeah, ultimately for me, I think this is a really cool move, and I'm looking forward to to kind of watching this from the sidelines and seeing if these 
Huawei MateBooks and laptops with Deepin Linux on them expand to uh, the wider world. Anyway, everyone, thank you so much for offering your feedback. It's really cool to get uh, a lot of different opinions and perspectives from, from people all over the world. And if you guys want to send me anything at all, the email address is linuxforeveryone at pm.me. So I am very, very excited to have two special guests on this episode of Linux for Everyone. Gentlemen, please tell us who you are and what you do. Hello, I'm Jeremy White. I'm the founder and CEO of Codeweavers. So I've been the guy responsible for getting Codeweavers into the Wine Project back in roughly 97, 98. Uh, And I mostly oversee the business here. I don't get to do that much day-to-day wine work uh, although I do have the joy of being the MC of the Wine Conference, which is one of my fun things. And uh, I'm Andrew Eichem. I've been working at Codeweavers for a little over 10 years now. Uh, these days I'm working mostly on the Proton Project for Valve. Awesome. Well, the reason that you guys are here is is to discuss kind of the entire spectrum of, of what it is that you're doing and how that affects our day-to-day life as as Linux users. To tell everyone a little bit of backstory here, I've written a lot about Steam and Proton since I started uh, covering Linux at Forbes, which was about a year ago or so. But I really did not give Wine and Codeweavers, I think, proper credit, you know, credit where credit is due. And that was pointed out to me a few times. And I thought, okay, I'm going to rectify this. Let's get them on the show and let's give them a chance to shine and. Give us the whole story. So let's start at the very beginning. What was the, I guess, inspiration for founding Codeweavers, and what was one of the first projects that happened there? Well, so I founded Codeweavers in 1996, um, and what I had wanted to do as a young man was uh, sort of interesting and meaningful work in the world. So I sort of was looking around for something important to do, and I had been an enthusiast for Linux really since the early 90s. I can't say I used it, you know, in its original form, but I certainly did Slackware off the floppy disks. And oh, hardcore. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, oh, it was amazing when you could get a CD-ROM. Boy, that was just so much better. But uh, I thought that uh, Linux, and I've loved free software ever since I first encountered the, the idea. It's always been a passion and a joy for me. Uh, and I thought that if Wine could run Windows software that we'd have the vision of a truly Windows-compatible Linux desktop. And by 2000, 2002, 2003 at the latest, everyone could switch and use a Linux desktop and just how much better the world would be. So you can uh, get a sense of how much of, how good I am at predicting the future. So I'll... Uh, <laughs> Although I'll, you know, I'll pull out my Android phone, right, right, and uh, and look at that. So you know, there is some solace in uh, some of the success. So I actually uh, turned Code Weavers uh, into the the '90s was kind of a crazy time in the tech space, and I was able to secure some financing, and uh, I actually turned Code Weavers to the mission of making wine, uh, you know, finishing wine, if you will. Um, and that was about 99. So I'm kind of a relative newcomer. You know, the old, the old guard have been here since 93 when, when wine started. And uh, so that's, that's how I got involved. Our first projects, we had kind of a range of projects. The most famous one was probably the Borland Kylix project. We helped Borland with that. Uh, we also helped Corel with their uh, port of their office suite as they were. Corel was working on a Linux uh, that was pretty compelling back in the oh, roughly 2000, 2001 days. 
And unfortunately, that was when the bubble burst and sort of the bubble burst in the Linux desktop excitement. It sort of at that point was the first point where it really became clear that the Linux desktop wasn't going to follow the hockey stick curve that the server had followed. So that's kind of an early introduction at some of the early points of what we did. And it's been obviously 20 some odd years we've been working on this. So there's a, a, a lot of fight that we've been we've been working on this for a very long time. To make this crystal clear for maybe people who don't use Linux or don't know what Wine is, how would you explain to someone in very simple terms what Wine is and what it does? So Wine is an implementation of the Windows API. It allows you to run Windows programs on a Unix-like operating system. Um, I've tried a bunch of analogies over the years, and nothing ever really gives you the exact sense, but... You know, it's like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Microsoft is Hertz and we're Avis. We're number two, but we try harder. We're having to implement all of the same things that Microsoft implements, but we do it on top of Linux. So if if, if a Windows program says, hey, can you make a window for me? We we do two things. We, uh, we say, sure, here's a window, and it looks like a Microsoft window. And then we also tell X, hey, can you go create a window for us? And then we connect the two, if you will. So it's a much more detailed and a much harder job than programs such as VirtualBox, which are uh, virtualizing just a PC. If, if we had a that simple a job, boy, it would be so much easier for us. Something that I've always wondered from a, a technical standpoint is what prevents certain Windows software and certain games from running through Wine? I, I mean, what are the roadblocks there? Because, you know, there's, there's versions of Office, for example, uh, I think it's 20... 13 maybe and 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 older maybe even 2016 that run flawlessly on linux through wine but then there's lots of other software you know for example um, a lot of adobe products that don't run or don't run well what what are the obstacles there so we're rewriting the windows operating system from scratch right so you need to implement each of those features that windows provides and windows is a very big operating system um, so, for example, we just haven't gotten around to implementing part of the API that it uses. Um, you know, there's so much work to do and so few people working on it. And so the program says, you know, hey, I need to, uh, like, parse this HTML file or something, and we haven't written a compatible HTML parser yet. And so the application crashes or uh, shows up an error or something like that because we're missing that feature in Wine. So that's usually what happens. You know, with games, it'll be uh, like Direct3D features are pretty common, although, you know, our, our API support is pretty good these days up through D3D10 into 11 and stuff like that. And we're working on 12 now. Um, but it's just a matter of doing everything that uh, Windows does in Wine. So it's a pretty big task. So for you guys, is it a matter of just prioritizing what needs to be done and what can't be done or what can be kind of pushed aside for later? Yeah, right. A lot of it's driven by our customers. You know, we have we're a company, so we have customers who need things. Um, a lot of our customers on like Mac and Linux want Microsoft Office to work. So over the past couple of years, uh, you know, before the the Proton work started, we were working really hard on getting Office 2013 and 2016 and so on to to start working. Um, and that's why you saw so much improvement in those areas of Wine, without so much improvement on other areas of Wine that didn't have as much customer base for us. But you've, you've certainly seized on our biggest challenges. We have fairly limited resources, and we have effectively an infinite supply of work to do, and really picking how you prioritize is a challenge. And you get subtle balances, like 
you know, there's an easy task, so you prioritize that rather than a hard task. Um, I'll have to be honest, one of the joys of Proton is we've sort of been authorized to work on some of the harder tasks, which we often, you know, business concerns mean you have to take a shortcut and you can't really attack the, the hard problems. I should, just for a more full answer to your question, there are other limitations. So there are certain Windows applications, for example, ones that rely on hardware interfaces. Those may not operate. You do get the lovely anti-cheat software stacks, which are sort of designed to not run on uh, environments, and those end up being very difficult to support. So there are some exceptions to the general rule of we just haven't gotten to it. You're referring uh, to things like BattleEye and Easy Anti-Cheat. And also a lot of the, the DRM systems as well, in addition to those, yeah. You know, the way that those work oftentimes is actually digging into how those modules are implemented on Windows. And like by definition, we're different from that. So when they go in and dig in and make sure that Microsoft has signed it or that the image on disk matches, you know, certain features that they expect it to make, to, to have, um, they'll quit and say, you know, this isn't a legit copy of Windows because they're right. It isn't. That sounds like a nightmare of sorts. I mean, yeah, uh, it seems like you would really have to have their direct cooperation for this to function as smoothly as intended, right? That's one option, yeah. Um, we've been putting a lot of work in recently to actually making the... Um, there, there's technical history behind it, but for various reasons, the uh, DLL files on the disk actually don't match what the, what the libraries are that we load uh, and run in Wine. And so we've put a whole bunch of work in over like the past year, most of that done by Alexander Juilliard, um, the Wine maintainer, um, in order to make it so that the files on disk actually match what uh, what we're running, uh, you know, in memory, uh, and that's to help a lot of the uh, DRM and anti cheat stuff. So there, there are things we can do without assistance from the developers. <laughs> yeah, is it fair to say that in terms of your revenue, that that crossover office is does that make up the majority of it? No, it's it's certainly one leg of our stool, if you will, but uh, we do a lot of porting business. Uh, that's another leg of the stool. So we'll actually help people bring their software to predominantly the Mac. That's where people are willing to spend money. And then we do also provide uh, services. And we've got a uh, sort of a couple of large customers that provide other legs of the stools in that regard. Okay, well, that makes sense because you already have the expertise, right? So so kind of acting as a uh, a porting house of sorts would, would make a lot of sense. Exactly. Are there any are there any examples of of software that that you could tell us? Well, sure. I mean, like World of Tanks, that's our port. Um, we've got I don't know fifty or a hundred applications we've we've done the ports for. Yeah, and I am and, and this is a case where I'm 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 not quite aware of what we can and cannot say. But as I say, we've got about fifty or so devices that we've uh, uh, or, or applications that we've done ports for. That's fantastic. So you know, if if Microsoft if, if um. If pigs fly and hell freezes over and Microsoft says, hey, Office 365 for Linux, <laughs> then you're going to be okay. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Awesome. Good, good. Before we kind of move into more recent activity and, and Proton and things like that, I'm wondering if you can paint us a picture of how just general usability and accessibility in Linux has changed from when you guys started this adventure to now. Sure. Um, that's actually been a focus for people in the Linux desktop uh, for, for many years. This is something I've worked on for 20, 25 years now. And it certainly started 
started uh, uh, very humbly. If you've seen screenshots of uh, TWM and, and X terms and X clock, that is what I used in 1995. Th- those aren't like stories to frighten children. That was considered a modern desktop. <laughs> um, you did get a really big effort. We weren't the only company that was trying to capitalize on the success of Linux on the server. So you got a huge amount of energy that I went to KDE and GNOME. Uh, right around the end of the 90s. And so you really started to see your first major advance in usability um, around that time. So you really, you know, you got kind of a modern installer, you got a modern desktop, a lot of strides were made then. And, I, and I'd say that things were, you know, if you look at circa 2002, 2003, you know, you look at a Corel Linux distro, the state of the art was pretty good. It, it, I mean, and forgive me, I, I know that people, you have sort of this last mile problem but, you know, in 1995, there was a continent-sized gap, right? And and now we're, you know, now we're down to, we got to get across a river, right? I, I don't want to pick your analogy. Um, the problem with user interfaces, it's an enormous amount of small, subtle details and user experience. And that ends up being really hard to, to bridge. Um, and obviously, the you know, my opinion is that people need their apps, right? It's, people don't really care what OS they run. Really, at the end of the day, they really don't care. They just want to run their apps. And so that's why I, I've always had this focus on Wine, being that if you can't run your apps, you can't switch. And so that's sort of been, uh, you know, our driving impetus, or as I like to say, it's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. Well, yeah, you know, I I, I constantly run into people who are saying, I would switch to Linux, but and it's not it's not necessarily that they can't run premiere pro or photoshop on linux it's that they don't want to switch their workflow up it's that muscle memory that's been built up and they don't want to change they don't want to sacrifice productivity and creativity to learn something new it, well and and i think there's a there's been a lot of fun made of people of Linux advocates, and, and I'm a Linux advocate, right? But you can get a little starry-eyed when you're telling people what it's about. I mean, one of my favorite early videos was uh, Steve, the supervillain, who who ran Linux, and it was so easy. You know, you just patch your kernel, and right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny video. You should look it up. It's a, um, but it, but it, it's this idea, too, that, that it's super easy to just switch your workflow, but it's not. Even a very modern, polished... Linux distribution, and you know, obviously, I'll make enemies if I mention any desktop. So I'll just say the best one, which is XFC, which launches my X terms. Great, right? Um, but but you know, I'm I'm joking. Obviously, I understand that normal people use a, a proper shell and so forth and so on. But even just switching to a good one is is a a real change, a real struggle for a lot of people, and uh, you have to kind of acknowledge that. And then you really have an issue of you need a value prop. You need to understand why is it better for me to switch, and that ha- that really has been a hard challenge. And I don't know that we really have an answer to that today. I think that answer varies depending on who you're talking to and what their needs are. Right, and and it's but it's you know it's challenging. I mean, so for example, uh, now I'm sharing my deep secrets of shame. Uh, my wife runs Windows. And she's not a bad human being, and we haven't had this conversation, she and I, um, but it's what she has to use at work, it's what she's comfortable with, and it runs all of her applications, you know, and so she's not unreasonable to to want to stay on Windows, um, and I don't, I haven't forced her, I haven't made her switch, but it's, it's, you know, if there were a compelling reason, something that was better for her, then I think she'd be open to it, but at this point, I can't look her in the eye and say, yeah, it'll be better. 
Right. A big concern for me when I switched to Linux back in like 2007 or so um, was just being able to do what I wanted to do. Back then it was a lot harder. You had, you know, MS Office documents that wouldn't open, that everybody shared everywhere. You had like Internet Explorer only websites, stuff like that. And all of that has pretty much died in the past 10 years. It's pretty much like I'm I'm pretty happy myself. Like I can run Linux. I can do what I want on Linux. I'm happy. I, for me, I don't care what you use. Yeah, I think that's that's what I end up telling people is just use the tool that's right for the job. And if that tool is on Linux and it's on Windows, then switch to Linux, right? But but if you're if you're stuck on Windows or you're stuck on Mac OS, that's okay. You know, I, I always tell people like feel free to dual boot. Feel free to try it out. You know, throw it on a live USB, throw it in a virtual machine and and check it out because one of these days, I, I have full confidence that one of these days, like you said, those apps are going to be everywhere and operating systems are going to be less important, I think, as right. well. Yeah, yeah, especially the rise of web apps and things like that has really made switching to Linux a lot easier. But let's, okay, let's say, let's say that a video uh, producer, a video producer or a photographer, a graphic designer really wants to switch from Windows or Mac to Linux. Does Codeweavers have solutions for them for running, I guess what I would call flagship software, you know, maybe Adobe, uh, things like that. Does, does Codeweavers have solutions for them to run those on Linux? Well, interestingly, we actually worked with all of the major animation studios in the 2000s on the uh, Adobe suite, and we had uh, Photoshop running uh, at professional level so that those professional animators could use it on Linux. So hmm. the answer is yes, that's doable. Um, that has shifted. I believe they're using Macs predominantly now. Um, and the other thing that happened was Adobe introduced a fairly... Subst- when they went to the creative suite, they introduced a pretty severe form of DRM um, and that essentially made using that software, right, created that challenge. Um and frankly, there just wasn't a market driver. You know, there wasn't enough to justify it to Adobe management for them to, uh, you know, the value they got from that DRM exceeded the harm that the loss of that Linux operation was. So uh, I believe in this day and age, you can you can get some versions of the Adobe products to work, but we sort of lost our head of steam on that, right? It was an enormous amount of work to to get that going, and it... You know, we're a company. We're we're sort of revenue driven, so we have to go where we get the money. And 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 sure, you may be one person who wants to use you know Photoshop, but but you're not going to give me five hundred thousand dollars to work on it. You'll give me fifty, right? And the the scale of what the work required is just such a vast gulf that it's hard to to bridge. So you know, get me give me ten thousand people willing to give me fifty, and hey, we can talk. But <laughs> you know, to be fair, I think that Adobe would share that same sentiment. I've actually spoken to them about bringing over Premiere Pro and and various applications from, you know, Creative Cloud over to Linux. And I believe them when they say it's not for uh, a lack of wanting to. It is a lack of, it's resources versus ROI, basically. Right. It's, it's you know, do we have the resources to, the engineering resources, development resources to troubleshoot, you know, compatibility for millions of combinations of hardware and dozens of different distributions and things like that. And um, yeah, it's it's a tough thing. It's got to be a tough thing for a company like that. Right. 
Well, in some ways, that's kind of an exciting thing. What's happened with Proton is you, in some extent, Valve is taking on the hard work of creating a, a single platform. And so what you can sort of hope is that companies will say, well, okay, if I get it working in Proton, then Valve will take it that last mile and make sure it works on these different distributions and these different combinations. Um, but it's a real problem. And, it's a, and, and even I had an executive say to me, I think very wisely, he said, Jeremy, even if you gave me a perfectly working copy of Linux version of my software today, I couldn't make money on it just because of the support burden and the, the infrastructure required, that there's just not enough market. Hmm. Man, hopefully we can change that uh, five, ten years down the road. That would be great. Well, since we keep talking about Proton, let's go there. Um, about a month after I made the switch to Linux, Valve announced Proton. And it was that day that I decided, well, I'm definitely staying on Linux now. <laughs> I feel like that generated so much more interest in Linux on, you know, the consumer level, the desktop gaming level. And you started to see mainstream outlets and and influential YouTubers talking about, uh, you know, gaming on Linux. But what I think the world needs to hear is your involvement in that and how that all started. Kind of the story begins actually with uh, Valve's SteamOS, um, which they released back in, I want to say, 2013, right? Steam Machines. Yeah, 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 that sounds right. Which was Debian-based, and it was all open source. And they even open sourced a lot of the system components that uh, that they made to build that operating system, like the window manager and stuff like that. And so we worked fairly hard to try to get some version of crossover working on SteamOS so that we could do kind of what we're doing now with Proton back then. Um, and while we were working on that, I found some bug in their window manager and I actually emailed their maintainer a patch, uh, to fix it up and they accepted it and it got, you know, got into the, the SteamOS release and the bug was fixed. And then about three years later, so in the summer of 2016, that same maintainer, uh, Pierre Liu over at Valve, um, sent me an email saying, Hey, are you guys interested in working with us to ship wine in the Steam client? And we said yes. And then two years of <laughs> very difficult, intense work. Uh, went into that initial Proton release, which I think is why it went so smoothly, is we had so much time and, and you know, polish on that. Uh, Valve gave us the freedom to do that, that uh, we released it last August, and uh, the rest is history, you know. that's it's It's gone really well since then. What is the fundamental difference between Wine and Proton? Not a lot. Um, we take uh, your your basic wine. We t- we pick a version about every three or four months. We pick a version of wine, um, and we apply a bunch of patches to it, a bunch of changes that will help make certain game works better. Um, help integrate with the desktop environment in a way that's we think better for customers, even if it's maybe less faithful to how Windows would do it. Uh, in addition, to other things like uh, better controller support, uh, a couple of audio changes here and there. Um, and then in addition to those changes to Wine, we also package a bunch of the stuff that Wine depends on. Um, so there's a couple of audio libraries we use. Um, Wine Mono is a replacement for Microsoft.net. Uh, we package that with Proton. Um, and then there's a couple of compatibility libraries that we wrote for uh, translating between the Windows version of uh, the Steam client and the Linux version of the Steam client so that Windows games can interact with the Linux Steam client. That's really cool. So let me ask you this. I have only been testing um, Linux gaming for about a year or less even. But even in that short span of time, I have seen the, the performance gap 
between native Windows games and those games running in Linux via Proton close very significantly. Is that, I mean, is that a result? It's obviously a, a, a team effort, of course, but like on the operating system level, is that simply because there is less overhead and, and we're finally kind of able to tap into all the more system resources than you have on Windows? Is that why we're seeing that performance gap keep closing? Yeah, so this, that's it's another example of balancing resources where we can spend our resources on making things work or we can spend our resources on making things that already work, work better. And definitely Valve has had a major focus on performance stuff. Um, so we've been focusing on that uh, at Codeweavers. Um, there's the DXVK project, which has done a really good, fast implementation of DX11. Valve has been working with um, driver developers, uh, especially at AMD, but also at NVIDIA, um, to actually improve the Linux versions of their drivers so that they run more games and faster. Um, so as, as the drivers improve, um, you'll see better game results. And they've actually been doing some really cool innovation with shader caches and... Maybe you can look this up. But there was something that um, AMD released uh, working with Valve on the uh, AMD drivers. It does something with shader compiling. <laughs> I forget the details. Oh, it's it's uh it's is it called ACL? Yeah, no. that thing. Yeah, ACL. Right, right. I actually covered that. Um, and the the, the performance boost on that was ridiculous. Right, exactly. So it's it's that kind of stuff. You put all that together. You know, it's a lot of like you said. It's a lot of a big team effort. Everybody working together to get to get this working better. Do you guys see that kind of input from other game platform holders such as Uplay or EA with Origin or Epic Games? Are they also working with NVIDIA and AMD on, on a driver level to, to you know improve things? Or is that just something you're seeing from Valve? I'm not aware of anyone making this kind of push around Linux gaming. Valve is the really the champion of this and really stands alone in this regard. We'd love to have a lot more people join them. Uh, and Valve would love to have a lot more people join them. They're very open to this as well. You know, I know I know that you cannot, um, you obviously cannot speak for Valve. I want to make that very, very clear. But I guess from a, a speculation point of view, what would you, what would you say is Valve's endgame here with, with their, you know, very aggressive, enthusiastic push with Linux gaming? Yeah, unfortunately, that's when you'll, have to take up with Valve. It's, you know, understanding their um, motives is not something that is easy to do in the first place. And I'd rather have them try to articulate it. Um, the joy for us, the joy for us, of course, is our mission and our marching orders are to get every game to run on Linux um, and to get it to run, you know, at at speed, right? And that, and, and with a sort of a fanatical devotion to that, where it's not just sort of accepting good enough. Um, and that's a thrilling mission for us. And we're really enjoying this work. Wow, <laughs> that I mean, honestly, that sounds like kind of a fun, a fun goal. You know, it, it's it's that's one of my favorite parts of working for Valve uh, on this project is that, like Jerry said earlier, you know, they've kind of given us the freedom to fix the hard problems and do it correctly, uh, so that it's fixed going forward. You know, it's it's a very big scope project. Can you can you think of any recent examples of of games that you guys have been able to? tackle uh in terms of compatibility like any any you know big success stories in the last uh six months or so uh the one that stands out that made the news a little bit was rage 2 um that one would crash on launch and it ended up it was just missing one function in a visual studio runtime library and i implemented that and then the game just started working after that so that was a pretty cool one like that was an afternoon to get a pretty big major title working right out of the right out of the box wow nice 
There is some subtle shading to this that's probably interesting to understand or ways we think of it, which is that we sort of started with a approach of, okay, let's get the back catalog running, right? So get all of the old DX9 titles, all the old things working. And in parallel, we've had a focus on getting DX11 titles working, and obviously with some success, and we're also working on getting modern D3D12 titles going. But one of the, the goals we have is that when a new title comes out on its launch day, it just works. So for us, that's a critical goal. And we're, we're, I don't, I don't, we're not hitting that every time, but we're, we're excited to, that's a really exciting road to be on. And very exciting. So I'm really curious, do you, uh, do you have the opportunity to work directly with certain developers and, and get advanced uh, builds of, of some of these games? No, that's not something we really have access to. Um, it's the way that like Steam distribution works. You know, the, the game publishers push their builds more or less whenever they want. They don't really coordinate with Valve on that kind of thing. So we would have to work with each individual developer and stuff like that. And that's a lot of... Overhead. Yeah, that would be a gargantuan task. That's a lot of overhead, right? We already have plenty <laughs> <Yes>. of work. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We have seen that, you know, despite the fact that, yes, there are, I think, 6,000 plus uh, native Linux games available already, which is certainly more than any console on the planet. But we've also seen the number of Windows games, native Windows games that aren't available on Linux, grow from like zero to something around 6,000 in terms of games that work. We've seen that growth in a single year. Forgive me for being pedantic, right? We've been working on Wine for 26 years, okay? So in a single year, you got to leverage a lot of our work, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. And and I'm just kind of I'm just kind of talking about like inside of Steam, right? Sure. It, it, no, I appreciate your point, but I I'm, I'm just trying to shade it with some history that that this is an enormous amount of work and we've been working on it for a very long time and we are so thrilled that people are getting to use the work, but it wasn't a magic of the last 12 months. It was magic of 26 years i don't know can you have magic over 26 years it was the drudgery of 26 years i don't know what you're uh, i'm actually no i'm actually i'm actually very glad that you called me out on that that's that's a very valid point what what was the experience like um before proton how did people get these windows uh games and software up and running so you'd run the the windows steam client in some version of wine um, whether that be Crossover, which is our product, or Upstream Wine, or some version of Wine, like Wine Staging or something like that, you'd install the Windows version of the Steam client and then download games and run them there. So you wouldn't be running the Linux Steam client. And you'd, you'd end up doing a lot of work. There were recipes out there that would sort of say, hey, if you want to run this title, you need to do this Wine Tricks thing, and you need to do this, and you need to do that, and maybe apply this patch. So... You know, there, you were still able to play quite a lot of games with some some ease and some facility. Like Crossover played a fair number of Steam games just sort of out of the box. Um, but then you had, you know, you had people who, a lot of people put a lot of energy into this. A lot of good work was done on things like Lutris. Um, the Play on Linux guys spent a lot of energy on this. You know, just trying to make it easier. Um, but your experience as a Linux guy was it was sort of a, you hit Google, sort of shoot, you know, hit and miss, maybe run an obscure command on the terminal. It wasn't, the, the, the goal that Valve always has articulated is they want a guy to be able, a person to be able to come home, pick up their controller and just play. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm glad that you guys called out Lutris and Play on Linux because it's effectively, my understanding of what they're doing is they're taking all of those you know, those wrappers that you need in those patches, and they're just kind of rolling it into an install script, right? 
Yeah, that's that's effectively it. I mean, it, it's polish that they're adding. There's there's some real value that they add there. Yeah, they maintain various wine patches and hacks and things like that that will work for certain games. Man, there's so many moving parts to wine. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, so many so many people working on it from you know with different goals and and all walks of life and industry. It's nuts. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, but we need more. Yeah. So, <laughs> hey, I'm glad you mentioned that. So. How can people contribute? How can the community help you out? Oh, wow. There are so many opportunities to help. Um, you know, first, if anyone's a developer, a, a C programmer, we're hiring, just saying, um, and particularly people who have a passion for computer graphics. Um, second, the there's sort of a community that we're not, as a company, CodeWeavers hasn't traditionally had a community manager invested a lot of money in the Wine website. So... There's a lot of help needed just triaging Bugzilla, triaging the wiki. Um, So there's great work for people who are willing to do bug investigation, people who are willing to uh, do technical writing on the website. There's sort of an infinite amount of work and a lot of ways people can contribute, and we'd love to have you. That's what I love to hear, too, because I'm trying to fight that, that belief that I can't contribute to Linux unless I know how to code. And that's absolutely not true. And it sounds like there's a lot of opportunities, you know, from what you've said. So yeah. great. I'll, I'll point people at them for sure. Yeah, we would definitely love to have the help. Uh, it's a joy, though. You know, free software is one of those interesting areas where it's, it's fun to have a community. It's fun to work with people. But, but sometimes it's nice to um, also have folks who are paid to do it so you can kind of lean on them a little harder than other folks sometimes. So let's talk about the future a little bit. I guess going back to what you said about the, the end goal being a game just working. You know, even in the last year, I've kind of shifted my expectations a little bit from, you know, a new game is coming out and I used to say, well, let's fire this up and see if it runs in Linux. And now I'm surprised if it does not. Three, four, five years from now, what do you think this is going to look like? Do you think that we're going to have issues like... uh DRM kind of you know throwing a monkey wrench in things and easy anti cheat and battle eye. Do you think we'll be at a at a place where we can pretty much play anything? I certainly tough question. Hope so. I know. Yeah, and, and you know, and I you've already know how good I am at forecasting, right? So I I think saying everything would be too optimistic, but I think saying most thing, just about everything, feels like a plausible path for us. At least you know if you give us three, four, five years, yeah, uh, and that's certainly the goal and certainly what we aspire to. Yeah, I don't think anything sounds impossible to me. Like, I think that most of, or I guess I should say all of the major problems that we know about are in theory solvable with a lot of work. Um, You get into some problems if like the Windows Store were to take off, although I don't think it has. But in terms of like actual Win32 applications running in Wine, I don't think anything is technically impossible. It's just how much work and how much time it takes to get there. So what I'm hearing is that there are a ton of intelligent and creative people working on this. And really the only, the only thing slowing down the progress is just um, a matter of resources and time, right? Exactly. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, that's solvable. That's certainly solvable. You know, I want to ask you something else. If you had to tell a developer, if a developer comes to you and says, I'm making this game for Windows, what can I do throughout this process? to ensure that it's more compatible with Linux? What do you tell them? Actually, that's that's a great question. And um, 
sort of my rosy futures include several great answers to that. Um, and, and I want to say, again, Wine is not always the only and best solution. There are great toolkits like Unity that folks can use, right? So if a game developer hasn't started writing a line of code, well, if you go use Unity, you know, you, you're likely to get a better cross-platform result. Um, and I'm not advertising for Unity. There are other toolkits too. But the point is, Wine doesn't have to be the only solution. Um, and there's certainly a lot of people who would rather people didn't target Wine, frankly. Um, with all that said, I think that what we want to get to, the world that I would love to be in, is one where people test on Wine before they ship. So if a developer just tests against Wine as they're going along, it's relatively easy to uh, you know, keep game running once you've you know, once you've started developing it and testing it. So, so the universe I want to live in is one where people don't ship their game until they know it runs on, you know, Windows 10 or Windows 11 or whatever it is, and it runs on Proton. That, to me, is a beautiful universe. I think the big concrete point there is just testing it on, on Linux. You know, whether you use some Wine solution or some other cross-platform, you know, uh, framework, um, just testing it on Linux, not putting that off to the very end, doing everything on Windows and then running it on Linux and going, boy, I hope this works. In my admittedly limited ex- experience with with game developers, they have told me that you know they might not be interested in focusing on a native Linux version of their game, but they're certainly not opposed to having it run through you know run effectively through Wine and Proton. And so if this doesn't actually require a huge overhead and a huge amount of testing and, and work, then um, we need to we need to get that message out there. And and we as a company are also hoping hoping that Apple allows us, but hoping that we can offer uh, Mac compatibility as another carrot, right? So one thing is if a company makes it Linux compatible, if it works on Wine, it should work on both a Mac and Linux. And that tends to be a little more attractive to your average game company today, right? Mac is perceived as a larger market than Linux. You know, when Proton launched, don't quote me on this, gang, but I remember seeing a comment from Valve that they had no plans to uh transition proton over to mac i mean proton proton is is an open source product right and so someone there's nothing stopping anyone from forking it and making a mac version correct the the advantage of proton is that it ships with the steam client um so if if you're going to get the best result from it you're going to have valve ship um ship it with it but you but your point is well taken and absolutely codeweaver certainly intends to provide uh, a solution for this, right? So, so we are very much so. Wine is open source. We're very much interested in allowing you to run uh, your games on your Mac. Um, I can't really speak for Valve's intentions there. I think they have some frustration with Mac, and I think they're somewhat guarded with what their plans are. So, I, I think that's a question to have to take up with them. I think that they're if they come across as guarded, I think there's. Many good reasons for that. You know, I, I remember when uh, Steam OS launched and Steam machines were being talked about. And, uh, you know, Gabe Newell was was very concerned about the future of Windows becoming a more and more closed, walled off garden where Microsoft was going to be, uh, you know, taking more and more of the profits from from developers. And in my mind, I think that is their end game. That's just my, I, I just think that they're trying to create the ultimate plan B so that if, if one day they have to pull out of Mac and Windows for whatever reason, they can say with certainty, come over to Linux. It's, it's awesome over here. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about Linux is you have the freedom to run it. No one's, you know, you have no walled garden saying, you know, no, no one imposes rules on you that you don't get to choose yourself. Let's say the, the maintainer of a Linux distribution came to you and said, I want to make it easier for the gamers who are using our distribution. What would you tell them? Uh, pick a good window manager. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't name any names, but that's probably the biggest struggle we have is window managers. Beyond that, I would say, there's things like keeping your software and drivers up to date. Uh, if you fall behind on those, then you're missing features or it's really hard for us to support you know, older, older things, you know, if we find a bug in a window manager or something and it takes a year for it to ship in your distro, then, you know, either we have to work around that or users just have that bug for a year. See things for things for me, like on a personal level, um, when I, when I test drive a distribution and I see that it already has wine staging installed, I, I just jump for joy. And I, and I'm, I'm the old man in the room, right? So I have to argue for, for stability, right? It's, you do need to be a little bit for a gamer, Wine staging is certainly going to be a better choice, and it wine staging is going to be geared for a gamer. But one of the great joys I had in my life is I was talking to a guy. I was just out having lunch with some uh, friends, and he was telling me about his hobby. He works on auto engine um, engine repair, and he said, "Yeah, and I had an old Linux box in my garage, and I threw wine on it, and I ran my diagnostics on it." And he was so excited; it was like it like brought him joy, and. And it's that little joy for me that makes wine so compelling and, 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 you know, lets me feel good about what I've spent my life doing. And, and I guess where I'm coming back to is Wine Stable does that just fine and, <laughs> and does it more reliably. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm sorry for being a bad influence. Um, <laughs> well, before we say goodbye, uh, would you guys like to take a few minutes and share where people can find you maybe on social media or on the web or... Uh, where the community can interact with with Code Weavers. Well, Code Weavers itself is obviously codeweavers.com. Um, we've got a, a blog that we maintain there, and we've actually got some interesting ideas coming up uh, for the blog in the near future, so that's probably worth giving a follow there. And then the main wine website is winehq.org. Um, we we could use a, a social media curator, so you could get involved and be the, the voice of WineHQ. There's a, a, a lot of opportunities to participate with wine, um, and I think they'd all be very well received. I think that would be, I mean, I think that that's desperately needed too, you know, to, to, just to get that out there more on social media, have a, yeah, have a voice for that. If I had, if I had some free time, I would do that in a heartbeat. Uh, yeah, I don't know your excuses. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Excuses. Come on, man. You're... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, here's to hoping that someone hears this and, uh, is qualified and can, uh, can reach out and, and fire that up that'd be fantastic well guys i really appreciate you uh joining the show this week and and sharing all of your insights and uh i promise to <laughs> talk about wine a little bit more and not just proton and valve <laughs> but uh you guys have really no i mean you've really opened my eyes toward uh, how much goes into this and how crucial it is to the entire uh the linux ecosystem really yeah, one thing that's been great about Proton is all the media attention, I think, that it's brought to wine. You know, we've always been a pretty large, popular project. Most people know about it in the Linux world. But I think it's bringing a lot more people to the wine project to help participate in it, which is fantastic. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, as I tell all of my guests, except for Michael at Destination Linux, uh, you have a open door to come back anytime and talk about anything interesting if you guys want. Th thank you. And I appreciate the interest.
Ladies and gentlemen, that is just about a wrap for episode nine. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed the conversations this time around. As always, it's just a joy putting this show together. I, I love it. But we're not quite finished yet. As you know, I owe you another song from The Source. This one comes from listener Werner, and I, I'm going to apologize in advance because I am most likely mispronouncing his name. Uh, I believe it is Werner Mindezabel. However, I will have links to some of his music on SoundCloud. And this music is haunting. You know, have you seen uh, the movie Requiem for a Dream? This, the melodies in here remind me a bit of some of the themes that uh, pervade that soundtrack. And I say that in the best possible way. Um, It's not the most polished that you may have heard from Songs from the Source. But this guy has true potential, and I really hope that he is able to find the time to uh, to keep investing into his music, because I think it's fantastic, and it's very different than what we've heard so far. In terms of software, Werner uses Ubuntu Studio with the KX Studio packages, and sticks mostly to Ardor, Hydrogen, and Linux Sampler, with a bunch of CAF plugins as well. And he also has a tip for hardware. All of the following, he says, work out of the box without having to install any drivers. The M-Audio M-Track, the M-Audio Keystation 88, Novation Launchpad, Novation Control XL, the Rocket 5 G4 Monitor Speaker, and a cool little gizmo that I can attest to, which is the Jamstick. Anyway, please enjoy his song, entitled Desolate. I'll see you guys again for episode 10, and in the meantime... Take care, and take care of each other.
So I am more, uh, I am, I am doing that over.